what I'd like you to do is just maybe just in groups of two or three, um, just deal for a few minutes with the questions on this left-hand slide of it. What is depression? How would you describe it? And what are the, what is your, what are the, maybe what is your preferred solution? If you had to pick one, what would you pick? Okay, I'm just interested. There's a range of right and wrong answers, or so don't worry about that, that's okay. What is depression? What are the solutions? Do you want to do that for two or three minutes in small groups, and then we'll hear some feedback? <laughs> is just some responses to that question, what is depression? And um, if you can maybe, I'll, I'll repeat these for the sake of the microphone and for the hearing. We're not going to run around with a handheld mic just yet. But what, what is depression? What kinds of things are people in this group saying? The opposite of expression. Good, like that. A lack of the ability to cope with everyday life. Yep. Lack of hope. Repressed feelings as well as depressed feelings. Yep. Right, so a darkness that affects all parts of your life physical, emotional, mental. Yep. Right, okay, yes. So uh, the moods are disordered. So, so we call it a mood disorder in some textbook, but the moods are disordered. Yes, in the middle group, anyone? Just low mood, first and foremost, low mood. Yep. Mental distortion and total lack of light. Yes, and of course there are degrees of depression, but certainly in some cases that, that, that can be at the total lack of light. Yep. Demonic forces. Demonic forces, okay, yes, okay, yep. Unmotivated, demoralised, lacking, lacking energy, lots of different things. Yep. Avita first. Isolation. Yep. Powerlessness. Yes. Yes. And of course, the, one of the things about depression is the more depressed you are, to a certain extent, the less you can do about it, because um, that's part of the problem. Yes. A self-defence mechanism. Good. I like that. I like that. You know. A, a nervous breakdown happens because the car could not carry on in its previous state. There, there is something in that. Um, whether we learn from the defence mechanism is anyone's guess, but it's definitely part of that. Yes, over this side. Depleted neurotransmitters. Oh, right. Depleted. <laughs> Woo! De depleted neurotransmitters. I will try it, but so something going on in the brain. The, the big question is, is that the cause or is that the result? That's our big question. Okay. Right, now what's our second question? What are the solutions? Hope, hope in God, yes, holding on to that, yes. At the back. Healthy relationships, yes. Someone to talk to, yep. Chemicals, yes. But large amounts of cheese that contain lots of these neurotransmitters and that kind of thing, yes. Yes, general health, general health, uh, good food, yes, yep. Okay. Yes. Okay. Right. Okay. Yes. 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 So, so if 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 a person has a, a particular brain injury of some kind, that can either affect their depression because it affects their ability to do things and then become depressed, or sometimes it can actually cause the depression directly. Yes. God is the solution, yes, yes. I 
Right, so medication in combination with loving and authentic community and friendship, yes. Right, realistic achievable goals, good. Exercise, yes, at the, at the back. Great, so chocolate is not only good for you in magazines, it, it, could, be, it could be really good for you. Yeah. Uncon unconditional support, important, yes. And, and one more at the back, yeah. Healthy eating, great, okay, fantastic. Right, I'm going to stop there because I'm sure we could go on all day. Um, what we're getting is we're getting lots of sort of solutions, some of which many people would agree with, some of which may be people's particular favourite, but if it works for you, brilliant. That's absolutely fantastic. Right, also just in your small groups and that kind of thing, what are the issues around... Christians taking antidepressants. I thought it was quite interesting there. We had obviously a range of solutions. I think only two people said a medication or a variant of. And um, it'd just be, it'd just be I'll, I'll maybe do a straw poll if we could in a second. Um, who, I'm just interested, put your hand up for two questions. Okay, the first question is, do you think it's absolutely fine for Christians to take antidepressants? And the second, okay, put your hand up for that. Right, so about half of you, I think, think it's absolutely fine. Does anyone think it's absolutely wrong? One person thinks it's absolutely wrong. Does anyone sort of don't know? So about, about a third or thereabouts don't know. Good, okay, right. Well, it would just be interesting to see if we can um, shift some of those things by the end of it. What I'm particularly interested in is most of you are saying you think it's okay, but would you be confident in explaining that to a church pastor, let's say, who might disagree with you? Um, and some of you would. And I guess some of you wouldn't, but one of the aims of today perhaps is to give you a framework to help you explain that to other people who you may find yourself self-disagreeing with. Okay? So, I'm just interested at the moment, just again in twos and threes, that's why we finish off with the coffee. What are the issues around Christians taking antidepressants? Okay, twos and threes, just off you go. Let's try and take some feedback from that. First of all, I will try anything. Chocolate, chocolate. It's only 70% chocolate, the other 30% is evil. <laughs> okay, so what, what kinds of things are people picking up over here? Yeah. Right, taking antidepressants equals not enough faith in some shape or form. Yes, at the back. Yes, that people become addicted to them, or, or even if not an addiction, dependent on them in some shape or form. Yes. A quick fix solution. Yes, okay. Side effects, yes, yes. Yep. Right. Yes. So the idea that d depression shuts away emotions that otherwise actually need to be talked through and prayed through and so on. Okay. Yep. Anything in the middle here? Puts you in a trance. Okay. Right. You can't be yourself. Yes. Right. So a sort of a half cure. It, you know, it might do something, but it's not very satisfactory. It puts you in a trance. It gets you half better. Yes. Okay, yeah, so Christians have a particular beef about antidepressants, which perhaps they don't have about medication for blood pressure or something like that, and I'll come on to that later. Yes? Oh, 
tried, yes, yes, and dealing, dealing with your own yeah. issues and questions around taking medication. Yes? Yeah. Yes, so other people say things like, oh, you look great today. Yeah. And you say, if only people could see what I felt like on the inside. Why are you taking medication? You look fine to me. <laughs> you know, uh, there's that side of thing, isn't there? Uh, yeah, just over this side. Right, career prospects, both in secular employment and possibly in the church, if we believe in careers in the church. But I think you know what I mean. People may, you may be overlooked if you're known to be taking antidepressants. Yes. Anything from the back? They cover up the root of the problem. Yes. Okay. So, so I think I'm not saying I agree or disagree with any of those. Um, just trying to pick out a, a, a few of the <laughs> themes there. Oh, one very important question. Yes. It could slow you down. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so some of these things are sort of absolute rejections. Um, some of them are say, well, yeah, but it doesn't really get to the root of the problem. Some of them say it. You, you, you stay, you, you know, it gets you perhaps a bit better, but actually it, it could actually mask or cause some of the problems. So I think we'll take some of those things through. I'm just going to talk for a wee bit about an understanding, my understanding of stress and how the brain responds to stress. And this is coming from me as a, as a doctor, and this is kind of the sort of medical understanding of it. Um, my, my understanding is that one way to think about life is, is to think about it as a balancing act. And... Um, We've got resources on one hand. Some of those things are internal resources, you know, a, a, a good upbringing, um, supportive parents, some of those kinds of things. Some of them are external resources, the fact that we've got a bit of spare cash in the bank, the fact that uh, we have a job at the moment, things like that, um, supportive relationships. And we've also got demands on our lives, and some of those demands are external, like maybe the credit crunch or um, the pressures of other people. And some of them are internal demands, demands that we put upon ourselves, perhaps um, things that we've been taught. You know, children ought to be seen and not heard, or you ought to be following a particular career path of some kind. And we all go through life with demands and resources. And I guess a lot of the time, perhaps, we find ourselves in situations where the demands exceed the resources. And actually, that's, that's okay. What that does is that, that causes a a condition called stress, where you feel a little bit out of balance. And a good example might be if you start a new job, and for the first few weeks, let's say, the water level sort of comes up above your nose. But that's okay, because hopefully you've got a little bit of a, a, a sort of cookie jar of favours stored up. You know, either we can lean on someone else a little bit more for a while, or we have a, a you know, ability to, to find extra resources, perhaps, in, in, in God or in our faith. Or... Uh, but what happens if this thing gets out of balance for quite a long time is that there are consequences. And I don't actually think this is necessarily a secular model. You, you, you can see some of these kinds of things in the, the life of the early church, for example, or experiences from, from working in churches. People become overstretched or, 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 or burnt out, despite very, very, very active Christian faith. So, for example, there's a lady called Marjorie Foyle, who I think she's about 19. She just finished her PhD. She's an amazing lady. Um, and she spent most of her life working in the Indian subcontinent as a sort of psychiatrist to missionaries, people who've gone out there over the past 30, 40, 50 years she's been working there. And people who've had a very vibrant, active Christian faith, and to be honest, they probably have a far stronger faith than mine. I'm only doing this in the UK. I'm not doing it overseas. And these people are getting depressed, and Marjorie's working with them, and often things around burnout. And, and her book, Honourably Wounded, 
um, which is people who have become depressed or mentally unwell as a result of their service for the kingdom, is, is a great read. And these things have consequences. What happens when... You know, we, we do want a little bit of stress, don't we? People always say, you know, you want a bit of a challenge, a bit of something to sort of get you going in the morning. And um, this U-shaped curve has got a funny name that I've completely forgotten the name of. Um, but if you ask a psychologist, they'll tell you. And if we do too little, we don't actually perform at our optimal. If we do too much, we, we, we sort of get a bit frayed and tense at the edges and shout at people and we don't perform at our optimal. But actually... the a small amount of stress can actually drive us on to, to greater things. I think it's one of the reasons why Jesus gave us a great commission. He gave us a, a goal or a target. Or, now, I don't want to necessarily call it a goal or a target, because he did call it a way of life as well. The message translation says this way of life. But he did encourage us to, to do things. And I think a small amount of motivation is, is a great place to go, but not too much. And he has called us to be living sacrifices and not burnt offerings, as somebody once said. Now, what happens when you are in a state of stress for longer than is healthy? That The first thing that most people notice is, is, is warning signs. And uh, just wondering if you know what your warning signs are. I know that mine, for example, is if I don't sleep for two or three nights in a row or if I get a, a stress headache that won't go away. And, yeah, sure, occasionally I'll get a bit of a headache or I'll have a, a disrupted night. But if that goes on for, for, for several days, not only does my wife complain, but also that is the sign of me probably doing too much. And you begin to use up these favours. You know, you're using up more favours and you're cashing in all your favours and, you know, things are getting a bit thin. And then initially perhaps burnout, where the level of function that people are able to maintain begins to get affected for, for the first time. And then after that, ultimately breakdown. And I think that's a very good point. The mental health, mental illness can be seen as a defence mechanism. It is the body saying, I cannot cope with this. I am going to pull over onto the hard shoulder and stop. Okay. Very sensible, because you're in a situation where the demands are exceeding the resources and it can be exactly the right thing to do. You may need to spend a period of time on the hard shoulder before the car is full enough, again, of petrol to move on. And what doctors think is happening... Now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to tell you what doctors think. I, I, I sort of mostly agree with this. What doctors think is happening, that over time, there are chemicals in the brain that get depleted, and this is a a little graph showing how, how antidepressants work, and I'll, I'll come on to explain how they work in a moment. And the idea is that the more stressed you are, the less of this, in particular a chemical called serotonin, but also noradrenaline and dopamine to a certain extent in the brain, the less of that you have got in your brain. And what happens is the electrical impulse comes down here, this chemical is released, and it hits the nerve terminal downstream, and the next electrical impulse goes down. What antidepressants do is they sort that out, okay? They don't do anything else. They don't give you self-esteem. They don't magically make you happy. What they do is they sort this problem out. And my personal view on it is that this happens as a result of being in a prolonged stress condition for quite a long time. And there's a number of studies looking at depression and its relationship to cortisol, which is the stress hormone. And some people think this is perhaps a primary cause for depression you know some people are born and their brains leak serotonin and they have genes that, that cause this thing and maybe that is an influence and a, a component factor and I think certainly you can see genetic influences in this even if you controlled for behavior learnt from a, a, a mother or a father studies done among people who've been adopted or twins who've separated and gone different ways but 
it, do, it does seem to require a period of stress to set it off. Not enough brain chemicals. Medication raises the levels, and it's related to the number of what we call biological symptoms. Now, biological symptoms is nothing to do with your mood level. Your mood level is either happy, sad, empty, lonely, those kinds of things. Your biological symptoms are when depression begins to affect your body. And I think somebody said that depression is a state that affects you not only emotionally, but also physically. And as a, as a psychiatrist, I would understand clinical depression as being something that affects you physically. So when you are losing weight, when you are not sleeping a wink, when your concentration is so bad that you can't even follow EastEnders or Home and Away, okay? <laughs> uh, actual physical effect of the depression. <laughs> the, these things are related to, to, to a lack of, 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 of serotonin. The more biological symptoms you have, that, for example, out-and-out out impotence would be another example in, in sexual dysfunction. Okay? Not just performance anxiety, but actually a physical inability to, to have an erection. There's a number of these biological symptoms. And the more of those they are, the more likely antidepressants are to work. So what that means by flip background is that antidepressants don't particularly work well in someone who is low in mood, but actually is still functioning at a fairly high level. Okay? doesn't mean they don't work, but they're not primarily designed to work in that situation because they're designed to reverse this situation here. So one of the things I sometimes say to people is I say, let's supposing you're depressed and you're minus 10 out of 10 in your mood and you've got lots of these biological symptoms. Medication might sort of get you up to about minus 3. But what it doesn't do is probably sort out the last bit of unhappiness and what it definitely doesn't do is give you... Positive mood. Positive mood comes from other things, such as work, life, faith, those kinds of things. And I think it's also a very interesting point. I think somebody also said depression affects you spiritually, and it does. You know, we all struggle to fully internalize the fact that God loves us as a father. When we're depressed, that is even more so, and that is part of the depression affecting that person's spirituality. It doesn't mean their faith is weak. It just means that they probably need a stronger faith than perhaps the person they're talking to to hold on to those things. Now, a wee word about counselling. I'm not going to say too much about this, but this is also the important flip side to it. I'm not necessarily going to talk about spiritual approaches to depression. I think that's another area. I'm not going to cover that in this seminar. But I totally hold with the fact that... Um, what we're asking antidepressants to do is sort out that, that, that lack of a serotonin in the brain. And some of them act by giving you serotonin, some of them act by stopping it leaking away. And the modern ones, the SSRIs, things like Prozac, people might have heard of, stop it by leaking away. But they don't give you freedom from some of the other things, perhaps to do with loneliness, dealing with the past, that kind of things. And I think counselling or psychotherapy with a Christian component can be, can be very important. And the first level of counselling is something we can all do. Family, church, pastoral care, we can all do that. Some people are going to need to sit down one-to-one -one and really talk things through with somebody. And the kind of things there are either a person-centred or a, a humanistic counselling model, which really is just creating a space for the person to talk. Or sometimes they may wish to test their talking against a particular biblical model, and that would be biblical counselling or the more explicit types of Christian counsel. There's a whole range of Christian counselling, right the way through from Christians who are, happen to be doing counselling, right the way through to people who work to a very biblical model. And there's pros and cons to both. Some people are going to need more than just a conversation. They are actually going to need someone to come along and take off, literally, 
some of the clamps and the vicious circles of behaviour and some of the negative cycles of thought patterns. And the secular way of doing this is through a number of these counselling models. So you may have heard of cognitive behavioural therapy, which is very much doing with here and now circles of behaviour and thinking and feelings. Um, a non-directive, what we call non-directive, or past focus, things like psychoanalysis, perhaps talking about your past. Going for psychoanalysis doesn't mean that you have to get like Freud and talk about penis envy and things like that, okay? A lot of that very sort of psychosexual language has come out of psychotherapy now and really ever did. It was only really Freud that was there. A lot of the neo-Freudians like Anna Freud and Melanie Klein and particularly the British School of Psychoanalysis will not be using that kind of psychosexual language. They may still use the concepts. And we all have used the words anally retentive, okay? That's a Freud word. They may still use the concept, but it's not about that kind of language. But it's a past focus the other main group is interpersonal focus. And that's an interesting one because if you've got someone who is depressed and you're counselling them, it is a bit odd to say, you are depressed, let's fix you. Because actually it could have been someone else. <laughs> uh, a lot of depression comes from the selfish choices made by those around us. Yeah. And possibly we have chosen unhelpfully since. But it, it often starts... So interpersonal therapy is looking at those kind of things because it is a little bit unfair. I think... To, to medicalise depression is helpful because it helps you say to the person, this isn't illness, it's not your fault, I can get you help. Okay? So, so medicalising depression can remove stigma. But it can also make the person feel, well, I've got to do it all myself. Now, I've got to seek help for this. In the same way that if you've uh, broken your leg, you've got to do the physio and strengthen your muscles. Um, and I think the interpersonal approach sort of bridges that nicely. Yes? Oh, newthetic. Newthetic is the most extreme form of biblical counselling. So we've got, you've got Christians who counsel, Christians who counsel using a biblical model. New, the newthetic kind of thing, more popular in America, would be um, sticking very strictly. You know, write a list of your thoughts here, write a list of Bible verses there. The aim is to get you from here to there. So that's what newthetic. Possibly more associated with, it, with that way of thinking, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I personally find it a bit harsh. It's true, but maybe not the best way to do it. So, but what kind of thinking is that some of these problems are spiritual, some of them are, are, are mental problems. And I think, you know, there, are, there is a spiritual responsibility. There's always a spiritual component. Having a sort of psychological way of thinking about depression or a medical way of thinking, understand some of those things. I think there's a really interesting tension between... Um, not medicalizing or psychologicalizing it too much. I, I was, I was, you know, I, I, I'm very sympathetic with people who said medication can take away the symptoms that actually you need to talk through. I think medication is great at getting rid of some of the symptoms, like you know, maybe helping you sleep, allowing you to put some normal weight back on. But if medication is stopping us from talking these things through, we need to do that. And you know, perhaps a great example is um, I, uh, Elijah after the Battle of Mount Carmel, where there he was, you know, he just defeated 300 prophets of Baal, and there he was in a hole, depressed by, in terms of the symptoms that he had. You know, he wasn't eating, his mood was low, he was despairing, he had lots of negative thoughts. And actually God wanted to deal with him in that, because he wanted to say to him, actually, I've saved 7,000 apart from you. And if he'd taken an antidepressant, maybe he'd never have been the prophet that he was, you know. So, so I think there are times when actually God does want us to, to really feel things, I guess my point would be, and this is something that 
when psychiatrists talk about the depression, they divide it into mild, moderate, and severe. So mild is where the predominant problem is unhappiness. And the, the, the first-line treatment there in the NHS would be psychotherapy, not antidepressants. You should not be getting antidepressants if you have mild depression. You should not. Very clear. Moderate depression, where perhaps you have two or three or maybe four but of these biological symptoms, and you're scoring sort of averagely on some of those depression rating questionnaires, you probably shouldn't be getting antidepressants. You definitely should be getting psychotherapy as well. And I think there's an understanding there that we do not want to mask these things. We do want to be encouraged people to talk about them. And in a secular view, that would be psychotherapy. We can add a spiritual component into that as well. But if you are severely depressed, you can't do that thinking. That is my experience. If, if, you, if you say to someone who is severely depressed, um, you know, would you like to believe this Bible verse or, or, or this Bible verse, the answer is often neither. It's a bit like saying to someone, if I can use a similar illustration, if you're working with someone who has very severe anorexia and you say to them, would you like this one biscuit or this half slice of toast? The answer is neither. Okay? They are not at a point where they can compare sensibly the, the calories and the benefits they might get from food versus the, 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 the pain and starvation they are feeling. And that is sometimes why you have to work Personally, I don't believe in force feeding, but I, I do think you have to work on a very structured feeding program, sometimes in very severe anorexia, because choices are not possible to be made. Okay? And I think that's my experience of very severe depression, the story I was telling earlier about the lady who turned herself in an A&E. It's not a situation where you start psychotherapy. It's not a situation where you start counselling. Prayer, yes, at all times, in all things, let's pray. But... Not counselling, even Christian counselling in that situation. The first step, I think, possibly, you know, we're going from minus 10 to sort of minus 7. I think medication has a, has a key role there. I'll just go through some more of these. And I think why, I'm just going to expand a little bit more on why I think we find this difficult as Christians. And then um, we'll do some slightly more interactive stuff. Some I didn't go into in great detail. And all of these slides are going to be on the website in about a week's time. So... Please don't feel you need to scribble, scribble, scribble. We were just trying to save trees by not printing out thousands of handouts, everybody. What happened several hundred years ago? Some people called it the Enlightenment. But what happened was that there was a division made in the way that we thought. And I was hinting at some of that division, you know, uh, earth is dirty and wicked and dark and I can't wait to get to heaven kind of thinking. Um, and what happened was that in the universities as well, there was a division into in arts and sciences. Um, I went to Cambridge University, and there was a time when Cambridge University only awarded Bachelors of Divinity and Bachelors of Arts. It still doesn't award BSCs. I have a psychology degree. It's a BA. There are not many experimental psychology degrees in the country that give a BA. Okay? And I think most people who would be doing that kind of thing would get a BSC out of that. And there was this, this division between arts and sciences in Cambridge's round about a few hundred years behind the times, but it, it still only awards the arts, whereas actually most universities now, they brought in these science degrees a few hundred years ago. So what we've got is you've got sciences and method and Jules Verne and only mankind can sail 20,000 leagues under the sea and one time we will fly to the moon. And this wonderful sort of human, human, you know, it's just a matter of time and medicine will have conquered all illnesses. Did you know that when the NHS was founded, they expected to overpay in the past five, first five years, but then eventually they'd work through the burden of illness and the budget would drop? Okay, it's gone up every year since. But this sort of method, science, medicine, body, and illness as bad and must be got rid of. 
people are not allowed to die in hospital nowadays. You know, I mean, the, the, it's a matter of us, heroic operations performed sometimes when actually the person should be allowed to die with grace and dignity, okay? But science in its worst forms will not consider that. And the other side of it is the arts, the BAs, the VDs, the performing arts, the music, theology fitting in there against medicine and this sort of split that happened there. Why is it everyone who is in a theology department is in the arts part of the university, everyone who's medicine is in the science parts of the university? That's starting to change. The professor of um, uh, theology at Aberdeen University is a, is, a, is, a, is a mental health nurse. Okay? Starting to change. The, the body and the soul is being seen as perfect and holy, therefore antidepressants belong over here and theologically, we shouldn't use them to impact the, the, the soul. And there's people who've written on this, and I, I don't want to do them down because they've done amazing stuff. People like Smith Wigglesworth, for example, who wrote about the divisions between the body, the soul, and the spirit. Great place to start. Bad place to stop. I think that is what I would say. I mean, Smith Wigglesworth has a tremendous healing ministry. I completely admire his faith. Very near where I used to, to live in Bradford. But... To say that the body is over here and then we've got this soul bit which, and then the spirit part of us, you know, where does the mind fit into that? And it sort of fits slightly unhappily between body and soul. That's one of the reasons why we call it mind and soul is that I don't think you can chop it into three like that. If you do a textual analysis of the New Testament, maybe you can, but I, I don't think it holds water. Great place to start, bad place to stop, possibly. Okay, I'm going to breathe and we're going to do a quick brainstorm in a second. I think there was one burning question. Migs, have you got the microphone there? Just at, just at, the, at the back. So I didn't give Migs enough warning. Can you, can you shout, stand and shout? Yep. Yes. Right. Right. Okay, so a question about whether or not psychotherapy can be, can be used and abused in the same way. I think, I mean, Carl Gustav Jung, I quoted earlier, Carl also said um, psychotherapists are the new priests. And in the same way that perhaps we used to go and confess to a priest, nowadays you go and confess to a, a psychotherapist. And I think that's why I said, you know, we, we, we may disagree with some of the roots and the values and the origins of psychotherapy. I, I think we have a lot to learn from its process. Personally, I see the um, defense mechanisms of the Freudian school as being very similar to my understanding of original sin. Okay, I, I think we can Christianize some of these models, and there's people better than I, particularly in the States, who, who've looked at this. But I, th I think there is a danger, you know, if, if you are going to confess to a psychotherapist, because you are meant to confess to Jesus. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, there is a danger there. But, um, I mean, if I can recommend a book, um, McMinn, Integrative Psychotherapy, one of the best books on the market at the moment, truly looking for a Christian model of psychotherapy, but drawing from both schools. Okay, one question there. I think we have got the mic now. Do, do you think that you could just um, let us know what you think the difference is between counselling and psychotherapy? Between? Counselling and psychotherapy. Right. I, I think if I just go back to my previous slide, I would see counselling as being a space in which to talk. And the primary focus is allowing the person to work out the answers for themselves. Okay? So it is 
by definition, almost in, in, in a secular world, person-centered or client-centered, the idea that is if this person is able to talk things through, they will actually work things out for themselves. And I think that is instinctively true a lot of the time. It's just we don't bother to spend the time to think. And in that sense, it's perhaps similar in some ways to going on a retreat or going on a monastery where you spend time in reflective practice. It's just done in a particular way that is appropriate for somebody struggling with depression. Um, that can be Christianized, and the person can be encouraged to reflect or position themselves with or against or that kind of thing, scripture, for example. But it is primarily the person working things out for themselves. Psychotherapy, and there is, there is no model other than that, it's a space. Psychotherapies, either in the here and now or in the past, have a particular model that says there are particular ongoing kind of root issues and the person will work with the therapist to identify some particular things that need to be particularly unlocked. So they, 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 they come more with a model. What you tend to find is that this happens more in primary care and this happens more in secondary care. Now, there are private psychotherapists, <coughs> but I would say the more severe the problems and possibly I, I work with, with some people who are extremely difficult to work with and they will make mincemeat of your average counselling space. Okay, I think, I think it's probably fair to say that. If they are allowed to talk, that is probably not the right thing to do. Um, so I would say the psychotherapy is mildly more directive in, in, in that kind of sense, and in, certainly in the NHS, slightly more specialised, and comes with stronger constraints and boundaries that are able to deal with things such as, for example, per extreme forms of personality or personality disorders, as we might call it. Okay, I'm going to move on. Otherwise, you won't get through things. Quick question. I've got some medications up there on the right-hand side. Analgesia, paracetamol or maybe morphine, chemotherapy for cancer, anti-epileptic medication, the morning-after pill, and the combined contraceptive pill. Okay? I just want you to discuss those two in, again, your twos and threes. And what I'm going to ask at the end is just a quick straw poll how many of you will be willing to take those as Christians? Okay? So do you want to get into twos and threes and do that? Our goal is to have most of you seating upstairs by ten past, okay? So, um, straw poll, who would take paracetamol? Okay? Who would take morphine? Not quite, oh, not quite as many confident... I'm, Personally, I'm on the Anthony Boland Bone Barrow Register for exactly that point. I want to take it. I think it's great. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, take it for pain. <laughs> You've got one person who wants to take it as a recreational drug. But I think that illustrates my point is, um, you know, morphine for pain. That's okay, isn't it? But actually, morphine also acts on the pleasure receptors in the brain. Is that allowable for Christians? How is that different to antidepressants, which act on a different kind of anti-pleasure receptor in the brain? That's one way of looking at it, okay? Um, chemotherapy. Who take chemotherapy? Fine. Just going to put in a word about side effects at this point. Antidepressants do have side effects. So does chemotherapy. Okay. It, it sources for courses. It's a matter of balancing the benefits. And sometimes the side effects are, you know obvious physical ones, like you might get a rash or you might feel very nauseated. Sometimes they can be in this sort of spiritual kind of sort of, I'm, I'm sort of dulled in my mind or something like that. I think, I think my question would be, um, maybe it's actually okay to take it to get from minus 10 to minus 5, and we're not necessarily expecting it to deal with that sort of bluntedness. So I think, I think there comes a time when actually being slightly dulled in your mind is better than being out and out suicidal or not eating. 
Okay, so we, we could see that as being a side effect, but actually chemotherapy can make you quite told in your mind as well. So but my point is that, you know, the side effect argument, valid one, but let's not use it as a reason for excluding them. Anti-epileptic medication. Are probably willing to take that? Okay. Saying that because Jesus healed people who had epilepsy. More often than he healed people with mental health problems. Okay? Um, uh, interesting point. Okay? Enough said in that. Morning after pill. Okay? Brave, a couple of brave hands. Okay? I, I, I'm not going to ask, uh, stick on that one for a long period of time. But the, uh, the reason I'm putting that in is that that doesn't act on the brain, it acts on the body. And the reason why we would or wouldn't take that is perhaps an ethical one or a, or, or a sort of theological one. And I think we can apply that kind of reasoning to, to antidepressants. But let, let's not get hung up on antidepressants just because they act on the brain because we also have an issue with stuff that acts on the body. Okay? And I think, you know, the combined oral contraceptive pill, there's different types of pill, uh, as you know. That, that particular one, the, the combined pill, is one of the more ethically difficult ones for, 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 for Christians. Okay? So, um, but my point is that it is an ethical consideration. Paracetamol acts on the brain. It acts on the brain and spinal cord. It's what's called a COX-3 inhibitor. If you want the technical bit, it acts on the brain to remove pain. Maybe antidepressants do the same thing. They act on the, pain to remove, act on the brain to remove pain emotional pain, such that you can deal with the cause of the pain. If the cause of your pain was a head injury, raise your ceiling. If the cause of your pain was a hangover, don't drink, okay? And for, for the headache kind of situations, it's okay to take stuff that removes pain, providing we deal with the cause of the pain. I think that would be my answer to antidepressants. By all means, take antidepressants to help with some of the symptoms of the pain, to get you to a place where you can think clearly enough about perhaps where the depression originated. Does it have roots in the past? Is it due to a here and now stress imbalance? Okay. <coughs> Just summarise that on a slide here for when you're downloading them. So do they work? Yes, in some situations. They're effective on symptoms, especially body ones. They do have an initial impact on these cycles of thoughts. And if they slow down your cycles of negative thoughts to the point where you can actually have a little bit of elasticity and flexibility and possibly see yourself as having a little bit of worth rather than being completely worthless, I think that's a good thing. They do the reduced chance of relapse. My advice would be if antidepressants work for you, you should stay on them for a year after you get better. If you have two or three episodes of depression, you should probably stay two or three years before you think about coming off them. Okay, they do statistically decrease your chances. That's my advice as a psychiatrist, also as a Christian psychiatrist. Okay, they, they, they do seem to act at a deeper level than just sorting out the problems of the, you know, the symptoms of the here and now. But they also have problems. They're not as effective in mild depression, as I was saying, or long-standing unhappiness without those biological symptoms. And they can increase, imp increase impulsivity. Just putting this in because you may have read a little bit about antidepressants making people suicidal or increasing frequencies of self-harm. I think they do in two situations. My lady who walked into A&E who was so depressed that she wasn't even depressed, she was beyond that, she believed she died, in order for her to get better, she has to go through a stage where she is just plain depressed. Yeah. At that point, she may have regained energy and not yet regained positivity. She is at risk. So in that case, antidepressants made her more suicidal, but I hope they will then continue to make her less suicidal. 
The other situation where they can do is if you haven't got any biological symptoms and the problem is actually unhappiness and you raise a person's serotonin from normal to a higher level, that is associated with impulsivity. It's one of the reasons why we don't recommend antidepressants by and large in children, adolescents, that kind of thing, or in people who actually their, their, their problem is perhaps self-harm and not clinical depression. Okay? Let's put that in as a safety warning. And things they cannot do. They cannot improve our faith. And, of course, they cannot do that great antidote we've talked about, which is about building our community, and they cannot, I believe, excuse behavior. There is an advantage to medicalizing depression in some respects, but we also have to keep that responsibility ourselves as well. Okay, question at the back. Migs, have we got the microphone there? Just in the middle at the back. If you can wait for the mic, that would be great. You you stated earlier that you would recommend people to continue to stay on the antidepressants after, I wasn't clear on what... After they, let's supposing they are minus 10 depressed and antidepressants are part of what gets them to minus 2 or 1 or even 0. I would recommend they stay on those antidepressants for a further 12 months. Even though they're better and functioning. but, But if you look statistically and factually, most of these crimes that have happened, like even in the States and recently in Finland when they had these shootings uh, and, and mass killings, these people were on the antidepressants at the time of their actions. Quite, quite possibly. And maybe they were in that group of people who weren't depressed, were given antidepressants and became more impulsive as a result. But people who have been genuinely clinically depressed... The evidence is that if the depressants help them get better, and I would suggest that someone who goes around shooting people probably isn't better, and if the antidepressants aren't getting you better, find something else. You know, I mean, a lot of people stay on antidepressants for yonks and stay depressed. I don't quite understand the logic in that, unless if they were to stop taking them, they'd be worse. You know, I think we have to sort of say, we've had a few bites at that cherry, let's try a different approach now, be it psychotherapy or prayer or something. Um, but people who have been properly clinically depressed... If the antidepressants get them better, they should stay on them because that effect is needed. I don't quite understand why, but statistically it's there in trials of thousands and tens of thousands of people. I can't speak for the, 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 the ten people who committed a lot of the crimes, you know, these big crimes. One other question, then we must go upstairs, okay? Lady at the back in the middle there. Could you just give some advice about lithium, um, about um, whether one should if you're a bipolar person, okay. um, is it worth taking lithium on a very small dose just in case you need to zoom it if you have a have a Okay, a quick, quick word about mood stabilizers. Um, mood stabilizers are something we use in bipolar affective disorder. Now, bipolar affective disorder and schizophrenia, I personally would be seeing as disorders where the primary problem is a biochemical one, okay, rather than in depression where I would see the, any biochemical problem as being a result of, of the stress. Um, and by bipolar affective disorder, I mean people who are really high, not just a bit unstable in their moods. That is either normality or possibly a problem with the person's coping mechanisms or personality. But people who are properly bipolar, as diagnosed by a psychiatrist, I would say a mood stabilizer is a core part of that. I sometimes say it's a bit like you've got a cardboard tube like you get inside a toilet roll. And the person is so bendy with their cardboard tube that actually what they need is a rod down the middle to keep the, um, to keep the, the, the mood roughly central. They're also going to have to do some work because the tube's still got a crease in it. It's still a little bit wobbly, so they've also got to do some psychological work around managing their mood. It's not just mood stabilizers. But that is a, it seems to be fixing a core problem. 
If you're going to take a mood stabilizer, the usual wisdom is you need to take it at full dose. Okay, so, so being on a touch of lithium probably is not helpful. Okay? I'm being stopped at that point because we need to get upstairs for the next seminar. One thing, I have also a handout here which summarizes these things. This will be on the website to download. Okay, thank you.